chapter 8 this morning. My name's Tom. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, glad you're here, especially if you're a visitor. Glad to have you as our guest. And we are in the middle of a, a series that we will soon pause because remember, after the holidays, when we start week one of next, um, uh, next term, we're going to uh, pick up out of Mark and drop ourselves into the book of Acts where we're going to take just the term and go through all of the big highlights of the sermons preached in the book of Acts to sort of get a, uh, a uh, quick hit, a debriefed, summarized version of the book of Acts into our bloodstream, and then we'll come back to the book of Mark to keep on going. So that's coming up. But for now, we are still going through the book of Mark, and we're in chapter 8. We're going to go from verse 1 to verse 21 today. And what we've seen so far is that Jesus has come and... It, it, by, by the writing of Mark, remember each of the gospel writers had sort of a different angle they were trying to emphasize, a different point they were trying to make about Jesus. And Matthew's gospel is, is filled with Jewish Old Testament scriptures being fulfilled because he was showing that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah that has come at the end of all of the ages. Uh, Mark's gospel is particularly written under... Peter, uh, John Mark wrote it, he did the actual writing, and it was to the Roman Gentile Christians. So what Mark does less of is quotations and, and uh, uh, references to Old Testament, though it's in there, it's not as heavy. What Mark is doing is showing this action-packed uh, story of Jesus' timeline in his life to show that he is authoritative over all realms, over all dimensions, over all things, so that those Gentiles who had used to worship powerful gods and mighty warriors and whatever else uh, that they used to worship, they have come to Jesus, the mighty and powerful Savior, Lord God, and King. And so the whole theme has been Jesus is coming as the King, establishing his kingdom, but it does not look like anybody would expect. He tells some Gentiles that a next bigger kingdom that will never end is going to come after Rome. They would expect a cataclysmic war to wipe out Rome. And, and Jews expected the same thing. If the Messiah is coming to establish the kingdom of God, it's going to come through warfare and destruction of the pagan nations. But Jesus is proclaiming a kingdom filled with both Jews and Gentiles that is established not through warfare, but through the death of the king as a penal substitution where he takes the guilt of all of his people and all those who will become his people. He takes their guilt, he justifies them, enters them into a spiritual kingdom, and then that starts breaking through into the world. And we saw the references in his parables, like a mustard seed in the ground or some leaven in a dough. It eventually overtakes the whole thing. That's the storyline so far, but he is met with, of course, as it always happens, great opposition from worldly rulers who are not taking a liking to somebody who threatens their power and their authority. So we're going to read from verse 1 through to 21. And remember, just last week, uh, Jesus has gone into the, he sort of took a break from the Jews. He's taken a few months walking through the, the countrysides, training and teaching his disciples. We don't have much uh, in any of the Gospels written about this section uh, of, of Jesus' ministry with the disciples, uh, except a few miracles that he did in the area. But let's read from verse 1 in chapter 8. Hear now the word of the living God. In those days... When again a great crowd had gathered and they had uh, nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd 
because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they're going to faint on the way. And some of them have come from afar. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before them uh, and set to set them before the people. And they, set, and they did set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So now he's gone back to the Jewish side of the lake. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got straight back into the boat, and went to the other side. Now, here's the big problem. Now, they'd forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Did you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not even remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? May God bless to us the reading and preaching and understanding and loving of his own precious word to us this morning. This is a, a, uh, not a repeat. We haven't accidentally gone back. There wasn't a reprint in the, in the uh, uh, Bible publishers. This is a second miracle where Jesus feeds a large crowd of people. And then, of course, he travels back to the Jewish side of the lake to go and, uh, for you, that's going to be this way, back over to the west side of the lake in order to go back to the Jewish area, has a little kerfuffle with the Pharisees, leaves them alone, goes back over to the northeastern side of the lake and... Uh, this final discussion that they have is had on the boat, and we will pick up next week what happens after they land. But back in verse 1, we see, we're going to first see the powerful mercy of Christ. Then we're going to see the prideful unbelief of his generation. And then we will look at the profound blindness of the disciples. First, the powerful mercy of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 tells us that in those days. So this is still in the, in the section of time and ministry when Jesus is outside of Israel proper and he's sort of in the surrounding Gentile nations. Last week, we saw that he had in this very same area, 
in the Decapolis, which was a Gentile area of 10 cities, the Decapolis, 10 cities. And he's walking around there, very much an unclean area. Jews who wanted to remain ceremonially clean would not go there. Jesus went there. And it was there that he had placed his uh, hands in the mouth and in the ears of that deaf, blind man, uh, sorry, that deaf and mute man and given him back the gifts that he was born with of speech and hearing. And we saw that, that he was proclaiming after that the glories of Jesus Christ, that he would be so merciful to a Gentile. And it was just before that, that he had been up in Tyre and Sidon, some of the most ungodly, pagan and demonic areas of ancient times. And it was there that he had shown mercy to a woman, who even though she had said to Jesus, I have I understand, I don't have the, the, the promises of God that apply to me. This is their Jewish scriptures. You're the Jewish Messiah. You're the son of David. I'm not even related. I can't claim the promises. But please, Jesus, would you have mercy on me and heal my demon-possessed daughter? And Jesus, in the compassionate heart that he had, foreshadowing the gospel which would come to the Gentiles as well, he healed that young girl. And we've been seeing that Jesus is, is foreshadowing the Great Commission where, where the gospel would not just be a Jewish gospel for Israel. It was not just good news for the Jews. It was good news for the world through the Jews. The remnant would be saved and they would be spread over the earth carrying the gospel and all nations would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the ends of the earth. We are, as far as you can get, just about from the place of land where Jesus first spoke those words. Here in Australia, representing many backgrounds and cultural and ethnic backgrounds, we here are at the ends of the earth. The gospel has made it. Jesus did not fail. He was right when he prophesied this. He was, he was in power when he sent his Holy Spirit upon his disciples to accomplish this. And now it goes deeper and wider even in South Asia, where our missionary currently is. Anyway, that was all last week. Recap's done, and now Jesus is going to do something that is, that is an answer to the background question of the disciples. They remember, and they still have, in their thinking, the very Jewish mindset, where sometimes God sort of sprinkles some mercy to the Gentiles, but when he's behaving himself, He's very much close-handed and keeps all the blessings in-house for the Jews. So they saw last week that, that two people had received some mercy of Jesus, but really, all in all, he's still our guy. He's still the Jewish guy. We don't have any uh, Gentile disciples, do we, Jesus? It's really still a Jewish game here. And this week, where one woman begged last week for a crumb from the table of Jesus, this week, he feeds a crowd with bread to satisfaction and fulfillment. And we see it because in verse uh, 2, uh, uh, Jesus says that he has compassion on the crowd. This is the tender-hearted kindness of Jesus Christ. And he's looking over these people who, of course, had been with him. Even verse 3 says, If I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. He, they, they had uh, probably... They went down, they, they brought some food for the day, maybe two because they were following this miracle worker and teacher Jesus, but they just stayed longer than they had budgeted for. They didn't want to leave. They kept sleeping wherever he slept. They kept walking wherever he walked. They didn't care. They were following Jesus. But now that he had sort of led them out into the desolate place, 
they didn't have any food left. They had run straight out and probably they were, they were willing to go a day, half a day without food, give the, give, give the kids what, what they need, but we'll, we'll go hungry if we can just feast on Jesus' words. But now they've gotten to such a point that Jesus, while he's teaching them and blessing them, they're going to faint if he sends them walking away. They've been so desperate for what he's doing and what he's saying that it's really at a breaking point. And so he decides, of course, we need to do something for them. I feel for them. And the disciples' response is here in verse 4 and 5. They say, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, Well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So when, when Jesus first fed the 5,000 Jewish people, uh, which really was because, uh, and we see 4,000 here, that's just counting the men. There's probably a wife and a few children with each of them, anywhere between 12 and 20,000 for today's story. They, the, the disciples had seen that happen with the Jews. They're not in this account as much as they did in the first time questioning Jesus, saying, what is your plan? Could this ever happen? What are you trying to do? They're, they're aware that he can. Today's question, they're wondering if he wants to, if he will. Because, you know, giving heavenly bread uh, miraculously to the people of God in the desert, it's kind of a Jewish thing. It's sort of our deal. It was Moses who fed the Jews, not the Egyptians, not the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, not the Canaanites. They didn't get miraculous bread from heaven. Us Jews did. And Jesus, we love that you sort of fulfilled that picture back a couple of chapters ago when you did that for the Jews. It was amazing and we loved it. You're the better and greater Moses. These guys are Gentiles. Are you going to feed these people in this desolate place? They're unsure. Is there nothing? Is there nothing that Jews get that Gentiles don't get too? I mean, what's the point of being Jewish? What's the point of going through the ceremonies, having bits cut off, not being able to eat bacon? What's the point of all of that if Gentiles get it all anyway? What's the point of, to take Jesus' parable, laboring in the field all day for a payment, and then one guy comes in at the last hour, does half an hour's worth of work, and he gets paid the same amount of, as us? The Jews, the Gentile, uh, sorry, the disciples had this grasp, a claim on God's grace. But if you have a claim on something, it's not grace. And as soon as we start seeing grace poured out to others and feel like that's just not right, that's, that's, that's something we have a claim to, or whenever we feel grace given to us and think that that's fitting and right and good because of who we are, or grace has not shown us and we get, 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 get upset about that, that is, these are the first signs that we know nothing about grace. God's grace comes in powerful love and mercy and compassion to the unworthy, the Jews we're not the first of the worthy, the rest of whom would get the crumbs. They were the first of the unworthy, so that through them God would shine his light and share his feast of compassion and mercy to the rest. So they wonder, are you going to feed these guys as well, these people in this desolate place and anyway, he directed them, and they complied. They sat down the people. They got together the seven loaves that they had. The loaves here are a little bit different from the first story. It's not so much these, these dinner, Jewish dinner rolls anymore. They're, they're, they're more like uh, bread cakes, slightly bigger, more breakable, sort of a large cracker type thing. And the, 
spreading it out, and then somebody brings some canned tuna and says, we also have, uh, how many of those do they have? They have a few small fish. There you go. And they offer that up. He blesses that and also hands it out. This is an amazing, amazing miracle where four to 20,000 people miraculously fed as, as Jesus holds the bread. And he, we don't know where the miracle's occurring. Is it happening that it multiplies and then he hands it to them? Or does he break it off and then give it to them and then it's regenerated in his hand? We don't know. It's amazing. We'd love to know. We can ask that when we get to heaven. But until now, all we know is that a miracle was occurring by the hands of Jesus to bless these people and satisfy them. It says in verse 8, they ate and were satisfied. They ate and were satisfied. He did not leave them hungry. He did not leave them uh, uh, still famished or likely to faint. It says here, of course, that he quickly left them, let them go back to their towns now that they've been fulfilled, and he went back to uh, the the Jewish area. But what would have been amazing, like we said before, to to the disciples, was not that Jesus can make this miracle happen, but that he would do it to the Gentiles. This, was, this is pushing back, again, Jesus continually through the ministry with the disciples is pushing back against their lack of faith and their close-mindedness. They were absolutely amazed that everything, and this is what will unfold in the gospel, everything that is on offer to a law-keeping, nationally identifying Jew of the first century who worshipped in the temple, the Jewish temple, who who did all of the rites and regulations and sacrifices, who had all the old oracles, everything that was on offer to them was pouring out to the Gentiles in the next few years. As Jesus would go to the cross, and he would die on that cross, he would be carrying the sin, not just of his people, the Jews, but of his people from Jew and Gentile nations. This is what Jesus would say. He says, I am a shepherd And I lay my life down to save the sheep. But I have sheep that are not just of this Jewish fold. I have sheep that are from everywhere and I must go get them also, Jesus says. One interesting thing that we might not know unless you've been doing your your Bible reading in the Old Testament maybe this week and you you hit uh, uh, the book of 1 and 2 Kings. One thing you'll notice about Tyre and Sidon, ungodly as they were, pagan as they were, introducing all sorts of idolatries and warfare into Israel. Yes, that happened. It was the most holy thing in the whole of the Jewish mindset and world. It was that temple. The temple, the dwelling place of God that is as Jewish as Judaism ever comes. And yet, Tyre and Sidon, from where Jesus had just come, that unclean territory, God had, back in the building of the temple, brought workers and timber from that area. Because nobody could make uh, timber and and beautiful cedar wood carvings like the the Sidonians and those from Tyre. So God sent there and made a pact with that king that his people would become servants in the temple to bring it to its final furnishing. So even right back then, what is pushing against the Jewish mindset of closed-mindedness is that God's temple will be made up of some bricks from the Jews and some bricks from every other nation, ungodly as you are. And so Jesus is showing that again today. That's what he's doing in feeding these four to 20,000 people. But what I want to also express to you today 
is that Jesus has the same mercy and compassion and love to the unbelievers in the room right now. The, the Gentiles were, were the people who were not a part of God's people. They were the enemies of God, all of that in the Bible. But, but we have today spiritual Gentiles. This is what Paul talks about in the book of Romans, that it's possible to be a Jew, but actually a spiritual Gentile, be far away from God. It's possible to be today a spiritual Gentile and that you're unsaved, you don't belong to Jesus, your sins are still on your own soul, you have not yet been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And you might ask, would Jesus look to me and throw me out, cast me out? If, if he knew that I was in his church unsaved, I've got mates who always tell me when I invite him to church, can't come, someone will burn me up when I come, I'll explode at the door. I say, man, we've got worse people than you in our church. I won't say who I was talking about, but there's, there's people here. You just come. come. Mercy, 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 right? But, but, but maybe that's you. You're sitting here and you, you know that Jesus doesn't care, care anything of you. I mean, you're a sinner. You're away from his mercy. You have rejected the cross. You have sin that no one else knows about in your life. And yet to you, what Jesus commanded to others he commanded because he first did when he said, love your enemies. He loves his enemies. He loves you. He looks out today, and if he was here today, he would have a heart of compassion to those who are living lives that are filled with sin, whose sin has led you down a pathway of, of, of self-destruction and distress and depression and, and pain. Yes, Jesus cares for you. He's tender-hearted. He loves you. The bread of life is as much the bread of life for you, even though you're not a Christian, if you want to come and take it. And then in taking it, you become a Christian. The, the mercy of Jesus is on offer for everybody. He loves us all. He loves you all. And yet the problem is that that love and that mercy and that grace of Jesus is not promised to you. Every day that you're an unbeliever, I can say with confidence, God loves you. Jesus offers his compassion. He has mercy to you in all of your sin. But it's not promised for tomorrow. And we don't know when his love and mercy and patience will stop and his justice, his judgment in, in death and then hell will begin. And so the, what the love of Jesus does now is invite you to come into his covenant by believing on him by faith. Because when you're in covenant with Jesus... When you trust him by faith, all that his salvation earned comes to you. His love and mercy and grace is promised. It can never be taken away. Death, destruction, despair, angels, demons, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ if you've come into covenant with him by faith. And in that way, the invitation is out that you are loved, you have mercy over your life, God is compassionate to you in Jesus but that's not promised. Believe by faith that he died for your sin, that he rose again to seal for you eternal life, and then his mercy is unchanging. His love is permanent, and his grace is unending for you. So believe. And after this, Jesus went on the boat, and he went back with his disciples to Dalmanutha. This is where it starts to get interesting. The Gentiles loved him. They were so amazed. They were thankful. They ate it up. They were satisfied. And then he comes back to his own people. And the leaders of them, the spiritual teachers of them, the Pharisees, came. And you just start cringing as soon as you see their names written down in, in, the, in the book. You know something annoying is about to be said, something rude, blasphemous, 
argumentative is about to come out. Jesus' detractors come out of the woodwork, and here they are. They came, verse 11, and they began to argue with him. Good guys, good guys. The most merciful, righteous, innocent man on earth who they've got a, a, an assassination plot to kill. They're going to go argue with that guy. And they were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. This is where we see the prideful unbelief of his generation. He's back into the, the, the Jewish area, and what they're asking for, not asking for, what they're demanding, your translation might even say that they were seeking to tempt him, like the devil did in the wilderness. They're, trying to, they're in the middle of some kind of argument, and then it's probably as a, as a okay, well, well, you're so high and mighty, you're so uh, much the promised Messiah. It's probably along the lines of them saying, prove it. I mean, do something. Just show us something that you are who you say you are, and we'll believe. We're not hard-hearted, blind people. Come on, we're nice guys. Don't let them see the assassination form that we've got in the back pocket. Keep that. We love you. You know, we just want to want some proof. It's in the, in the middle of this argument. They demand that he does something. The language there is from heaven. The, the, the distinction is probably that they're saying, we've seen you do a whole bunch of you know, tricks on earth. Show us something like Moses did when something came down literally from heaven to earth. Do that and we'll believe. Do something like Joshua, Moses' disciple, who, who stopped the sun in the sky, whether it was the rotation of the earth, the entire movement of the universe, or, or simply the, the placement of the sun. We don't know, but God paused the sun in the Old Testament to let there be fighting time for the Jews. Jesus, do something impressive like that and we'll believe we promise. We're well-meaning. They demand this. They ask for this. <clears throat> they say, prove yourself to us so that they can trap and test and corner him. And it's important at this moment to start asking for ourselves so that we have a good understanding, so that we know how to answer those who might even say similar things, what miracles can and can't do. What miracles can and can't do. Miracles can encourage people who believe in Jesus Christ. If you see a miracle, maybe you've been there when one happens, when you hear of an account of something, maybe even just a, a, a situational miracle, something amazing happens in answer to prayer. Of course, those who believe in Jesus are immensely encouraged that God did such a thing. It can also help your temporal needs like we just saw. Jesus does a miracle, fills their bellies for an afternoon and sends them home so that they don't faint and die in the wilderness. And so it is in the book of Acts. Miracles can meet needs that you have. Miracles can display God's power in a particular situation. And that's great. We love that. But what miracles can't do is create faith. It is a miracle for God to create faith in an unbelieving heart. But a miracle done before the eyes is never enough to create faith. It's, it's a folly of entire church movements even that will we'll say, what we need to do is just go out into the streets, into the, the, the cities, and just start doing amazing miracles and, and things that look like miracles or things that we can trick people to believe are miracles uh, and, and do them all so that people see a miracle and believe. If the world just saw more miraculous power, surely everyone would come to Jesus Christ as Savior. But miracles are not able to create faith. Miracles are not able to convince a sinner to repent. Miracles are not able to convince an atheist to admit that they believe in God. Miracles are not able to create a new heart in somebody. 
And here's the problem. He's already filled the land with miracles from heaven. He rose people from the dead. He cast out 2,000 demons out of somebody. He's healed the sick. He's made lame people start walking again. They know that he's from heaven. They've seen signs and miracles everywhere pointing to the fact that he's from heaven. They're being dishonest at this moment. They're saying, just show us something amazing as if they would do anything other than just attribute it to Satan like they did a few chapters ago. This is the error, friends. We, we tend to think that faith and unbelief are sort of conclusions that people come to, but they're not. Faith and unbelief are, in fact, the starting points that people come from. They are the, the filters or the glasses on our eyes through which everything goes, which determine how we conclude about things. I was listening to a debate just not long ago, and an atheist said, you know, if I would believe, I, I would believe if I saw a second moon appear in the sky tomorrow and it had some Jewish scriptures written on it, or something like that, something obvious. If I saw a moon in the sky, I would believe. How about one moon? It's pretty impressive. How about one earth that's so perfectly designed and intricately ordained and organized to support life? Like, like, like everybody just takes whatever they have and then adds one thing onto it and says, then I'll believe. And the folly is that, that Jesus will do more and they will still not believe. We see this uh, written for us in Luke 24, uh, sorry, Luke 16, an amazingly shuddering reality in Luke 16. I'm going to go there <clears throat> and read it for us. Luke 16, verses 27. This is in the, the uh, parable that Jesus tells about a poor man that, uh, that dies and goes to heaven and a rich man that dies and goes to hell. And in his torments, as he says he is in anguish in the flame, he's speaking in this parable across the breach up to Abraham, who's in heaven. And he asks Abraham that Abraham would send uh, the, the poor man who died, back from the dead. Here's what he says, verse 27. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, the dead man, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know what's so interesting about that story? Jesus has just in the surrounding chapters, risen a Lazarus from the dead, who is the name of the man in the story. And Jesus himself would rise from the dead and even then the Jews would deny it. What more of a sign from heaven do you need? What this is showing us is that miracles cannot create faith. Don't ever pander to that. Don't ever uh, pray to God even for your own life that if he could just show you something, then you'll believe. Faith accepts what God has already done. And that is what Abraham was telling uh, the, the man in hell. If faith does not accept the scriptures, it will accept nothing else. If unbelief does uh, turn into accepting the scriptures, then 
The first sign of a godly heart of belief is to say, I need nothing more. I'm entitled to nothing more. What you've said and done is enough. So unbelief is somewhere a heart starts from, not a conclusion it comes to. Any, any miracle that an atheist sees, they end up just going, well, you know what? There must be another explanation for it. I don't know, I said it'd make me believe in God, but it turns out that maybe time travel's possible and a future evolved version of our species came back and did something miraculous in our life. That's, that's what people do. Miracles are unable to create faith. And so God, Jesus, knowing this, does not give to them a sign. Instead, it says here in, in uh, verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. He sighed deeply. This is, this is what you would feel if today when you got in your car after church, you drive home, you see smoke in the sky, you feel sorry for whoever's house, backyard, is burning. You tell yourself it's not going to be you. You get home, and your home and everything you hold dear and the precious little pet that you have is gone in the ashes of a fire. What you would say is you get out onto the road and see everything gone, that you're hoping to come and enjoy that feeling, that sighing, that anguish is what Jesus is feeling. He came from heaven to come to his own people. He came across the lake to come back to his own people. And what did he find? A burning mess of religious rubble. Prove that you're God. And he sighed deeply, saying, why does this generation seek a sign? This generation is a language in uh, the Gospels, but in uh, uh, biblical terminology, meaning everybody alive at one time. And if we talk about this generation now, you're going to ask, well, which generation? We've got some with gray hair. We've got some with, uh, uh, who haven't learned to talk yet. We, we've got multiple generations here. But no, in biblical um, uh, uh, thought, everybody alive at one time is sort of a part of a generation. And that is what Jesus is saying. The people who I have come to, this generation, have prideful unbelief that accept nothing that I do for them. This is their problem. <clears throat> So he sighed deeply in his spirit that there were no true worshippers, but there were other, uh, uh, rather people demanding evidence from God. They were making the false claim that if you do this, God, then we will believe, which is absolutely untrue. And so Jesus says, no sign will be given to this generation. And he means no sign of that sort. I'm not going to bend my knee to you and try and convince you and try and bring you over. No, I'm not going to do that. No sign will be given to you. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. When somebody went into the bellies of the earth, proclaimed dead, and then came back three days later. That'll happen. And what will you say then? But he went away from them as he gets straight back on the boat and goes over to the area of Bethsaida. But on the way, this is where we're going to see the profound blindness of the disciples. And don't judge them too hard. Wear them. We're always, we are just like them, but let's look at how profoundly blind they are to what Jesus means. So they go in and look at verse 14. This is a little, a little clue. This is a, uh, um, a sort of a, a, an introductory sentence that you need before the real story starts. So, so Mark's saying, now, before we tell the story, they, you need to know they'd forgotten to bring bread and they only had one little loaf. Now, I don't know who was in charge of the hospitality among the disciples. It's probably Judas. He probably sold them. Probably sold, sold it and took, took the money. Anyway, they had seven huge baskets left over of food, and one guy brought one roll. 
Man, these guys. Young guys cannot be trusted to look after themselves. So they left it somewhere on the shore. They've forgotten it. Somebody thought all the other guys were going to get it. And they're on the boat and they have one little loaf. That's all you need to know. <clears throat> all right, now the real story. Jesus, still fuming, still angry, still in anguish over the spiritual state of his people, who he had loved, who he had come for, who he had taught, who he had lived with and grown up with, his own people, he says to them in verse 15, in such a frustrated way, yet without sin, he cautioned his disciples. He's always looking to turn situations into lessons for disciples. And he cautioned them saying, watch out and beware. Watch out. And, and both of these uh, uh, verbs are in the continuing. Be watching out. Always be aware. Look out always from within. He says, look out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In the Old Testament, leaven was often a, a symbol of sin. So in the holy days, they would have to cleanse all the leaven, all the yeast type stuff out of their house because it's a fitting picture of sin because when it gets into some dough, there's no stopping it. You either chop off the whole lot or it infects everything given time. Like yeast, sin is a living thing, always creeping, always hungry for more, taking over, infecting everything. And Jesus has said, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, which he means their belief and their teachings are like leaven. Watch out for it. It'll infect your souls. And they, always the bright theologians, <clears throat> they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So they hear Jesus say, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and, the, and, and Herod. And they start thinking, did, some, did somebody borrow yeast from, did somebody get leaven from Herod and the Pharisees? Is that, is that what happened here? Did Jesus, he, 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 he likes the good stuff and you went and got the home brand Pharisee leaven. That's not what we're supposed, or, or maybe Jesus is a real supporter of the small uh, business and you went and got the big business Pharisee yeast. What, what happened? Like they're arguing about bread. Who did what? Did we do something wrong? We've only got one piece of bread and that's a problem enough because there's 12 guys plus Jesus. What are we going to do? We don't have bread. And Jesus, like us, with a little bit more insight, I think, looks at these gentlemen completely confused about what he had just said. They have no clue. He just opened his heart to them. In love, don't be like that. And they start worrying about whether they packed the right gluten-free bread or not. He packed the leaven. And Jesus answered. Jesus, aware of what they were saying, said to them, why? There's about 10 questions that just come in staccato fashion here. Jesus just drills them and drills them and drills them down into humility. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no Bread, what are you talking about? And, and the first thing that he's going to point out is, is that you're spiritually misunderstanding. And then he's just going to sort of circle back and go, even if I was talking about bread, what did I just do? Even if that was my meaning, what is your problem? And so we'll see. He's just so frustrated. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you do not have bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Which is a biblical way of asking. Do you not, is, is nothing that I'm putting in front of you coming down into the heart? 
You have eyeballs and you're seeing nothing that I mean. And do you not remember? Remembering. So there's, there's one problem that they're not perceiving, right? And there's the other problem. They're not even remembering what just happened. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Twelve. What? 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 Twelve, Jesus. Twelve baskets. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven, Jesus, seven. He said to them, do you not yet understand? the, The bread forgetfulness is one thing. But the bigger problem is that they do not perceive what Jesus is about and what he is doing. When he was warning them against the Herod and the Pharisee and leaven, he was meaning the, the Pharisees particularly were skeptical and, and bound by tradition, who if Jesus was going to come into their life and their system, he needs to bend, he needs to carve off some things, he needs to stop saying other things and fit into the cookie cutter of our religion. Jesus will be a good Lord if he's a good servant and do as we say. We'll receive him, he'll come in if he do what we ask for. And Herod, the, the sin of the Herodians and, of course, the Sadducees who were in bed with the Herodians politically, their error was to be entirely secular. They, they proclaimed all this Jewish spirituality and whatnot, but they didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't care for an afterlife. What their lives were all about was sex, money, pleasure, drunkenness. And that, that secularism, Jesus could come into that if he wants, if he can gear it up a notch. And Herod would even, he wanted to meet Jesus. He was the whole ministry of Jesus, trying to get a hold of Jesus so that Jesus could do some magic shows for him. You remember when Jesus is being judged at his death, he gets sent to Herod and Herod demands, do some miracles, do something, do something. Didn't do anything, slapped him and threw him away. So that we can be allowing the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians to come into our own hearts if, if we do one of two things. If we set up a traditionalism and a religious-ism, uh, rules and traditions and, and standards that, that we all, that they're not biblical, but we respect them and they've been handed down and, and there's a certain way of doing things. And if Jesus would bring revival, if Jesus would uh, lead us into holiness, if Jesus would teach us more of his word through his Holy Spirit, if he wants to do any of that stuff, it's nice, but he's got to fit our rules. He's got to do what we say. He's got to do what we want. And attached to that is some kind of proudful demand that Jesus will prove himself to us. Maybe, maybe you demand that Jesus does miracles and then you'll repent. If he answers that prayer, then you'll do as he says. A deadly, deadly habit. Or of the Herodians. We can be those who, who, we don't mind church a little bit. We don't even mind some of the teachings of Jesus. They're helpful so that I can take out of context a couple of phrases here and just be all the more uh, acceptable to my culture. I like love thy neighbor. Don't need the rest of scripture to tell me what that means. Just do that. Everybody loves you. I like do not judge and I'll take that and get some popularity. I like the, the you know, we've been set free from sin and so I'll, I'll uh, sorry, set free from the law and so I'll take that and that's my new life verse now. And all that Jesus does for you is feed your secularism, hunger for popularity, hunger for money. You know, Jesus is good to have around because when the business isn't going great, I pray and he should do his job and bring me back up. He'll bring me back into popularity. He'll, he'll fix my relationships up. He'll make me prosper in all these areas. Jesus is good if he feeds my secularism. 
to both of those, we have to be on guard. Stand firm. Keep watch against those two different manifestations of unbelief. And so we must also follow in what Jesus has commanded here and do the same. So we need to avoid, if we can wrap up here, we want to avoid the, the, the prideful unbelief of Jesus' generation. We want to avoid the profound blindness of the disciples. And we want to avoid the, the, the secularism. Jesus died for each of these type of people. Pharisee people, Herodian-like people, Gentile people in the wilderness who are unsaved and profoundly blind spiritual people. He's died for all so that all can come and all that do come receive his salvation. Fulfillment of the law in your place. You stand righteous before God. Condemnation in your place so that you have no more condemnation, wrath or guilt before God. Uh, the promised Holy Spirit who comes to us to em empower us for life and living and glorifying God. A promise of future resurrection because Jesus rose again and a whole new world will create it where, which we will inhabit for eternity. All of these promises come to anybody wherever you find yourself in this story today if you just believe by faith. Bring nothing to the table of what you've been doing. Don't come with a, a resume. Don't come with a, a list of things you've achieved. Jesus cares for none of it. Come as a sinner. That's who he died for. Come as a useless, worthless, depraved sinner, and you have the fullness of the promises of God available to you. And so we, we, was, we, we must be on, on guard against the the, the leaven, and, and, and I just want to leave one last piece of um, application here for us, <clears throat> is that those who are uh, of us, Christians, who find ourselves like the disciples, constantly not discerning and constantly uh, uh, forgetting the mercies of God, let us be those who, with intentionality, are meditating prayerfully on what God has done for you in the past. The, 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 the first thing to living a, a foolish life going forward is forgetting what God has done for you in the past. And not just remember them, but, but dwell on them and reflect on them, the mercies of God. And then that will also keep you from being like the Pharisees, demanding something else. When you remember all that God has done for you in salvation and in providence, you'll demand nothing else. And everything else that comes will be met with gratitude and thanks for things we don't deserve. And also, it will keep us perceiving. Be always and ever under the authority of the word. Of course, in a, in a church setting and individually and in your families, be always opening the word of God, feasting on it so that it would do its work in our heart in pushing out and cutting off the leaven that does not believe. We spend, especially in this day and age, more time than you realize downloading and, and in, ingesting information from the screen, from the phone, from the billboards, from the people, all of this social pressure to believe and say certain things. You're all being discipled. We all are. And so do you find enough time in the Word of God to push back against that which is ungodly and put into your soul that which will feast, not just like bread in a desert, but bread for your soul, the Word of God. That's for us today. We look forward to seeing next week how the blindness of the disciples is again shown and promised salvation and healing in the gospel. I'm looking so forward to that as Jesus, for the first time, foretells his death and resurrection in the gospel of Mark. Let's pray.
Father God, we are unworthy, unrighteous sinners. And left to ourselves and in our own right, we have nothing to demand from you. We have nothing deserved for us except hell and a just punishment of our sins. Even just taking the last week on its own, there is a, enough sin in each of our lives there to condemn a world of sinners. But God, we thank you that while we read in the Gospels, what we see explained in the New Testament, what we see prophesied in the Old Testament is mercy coming to us from heaven, which we don't deserve, which we cannot demand, which doesn't come to us on our own terms and according to our own rules and regulations, but just comes exploding from heaven in mercy and grace. Jesus Christ, who died for us, who rose for us, and who now reigns and rules to give us mercy and repentance and faith. I pray, Lord, that if anybody's here today and does not believe that today would be the day when they throw their, their soul to Jesus Christ, when they allow him to take their sin, they bend the knee to his lordship, stop demanding more evidence or more uh, from Jesus, but simply accept all that you are for us, God, in Jesus Christ. And those of us who know you, would you stir us up to, to always and ever be reflecting on how great you are, how many wonderful works you've done for us in redemption and how many times through our life you have answered prayer and you have blessed us and you have grown us despite our own folly and sin. Make us holy, make us passionate, make us zealous, make us people of the word. We trust your Holy Spirit to do this otherwise impossible job. And everybody who believed in Christ said, amen, amen.